I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, but in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. Ah, welcome to the Leaves of Glen cabin. Yeah, where it's a fun little bit where I pretend to live in a cabin in the woods. My chalet in the forest. Uh, and not just recording in my basement. This is where I read the hottest of public domain books and short stories. This week, uh, we're going to continue reading uh, Castle of Terror by uh, a fake person called Caroline Farr. It's a gothic horror novel first published in August of 1975. Uh, about the author, as I've said on every chapter, there's nothing about this author. The author, uh, Richard Wilkes Hunter, used the pseudonym Caroline Farr, also called a house name, uh, when he started writing a gothic horror series in 1966 to 1977 for Horowitz Productions, uh, and that's it. Got nothing else. Oh, got nothing else to say uh, about that. So uh, why don't we just move on? to reading about authors who were dicks from grunge.com, a website that tries really hard to talk cool to the teens and get them excited about uh, literature by telling about who's a jerk. This week's jerk, J.D. Salinger. That's right, J.D. Salinger. As a side note, uh, back in the late 2000s, um, my... Uh, I think J.D. Salinger died, and I was still on Facebook at that point. That's, that's a time when Facebook wasn't the cesspool that it became later. Uh, and uh, and so I, I posted, oh, that's too bad, J.D. Salinger died. And then my dad, who was also on Facebook, said, oh, that's too bad, uh, I always liked J.D. Salinger. Then a friend of mine, just being a dick because he thought it was funny, decided to jump on and say, J.D. Salinger sucks. Uh... Anyone that likes J.D. Salinger is a jerk and a moron and a phony, because that was a phrase that was used in that book a lot. Man, uh, my dad got mad, and I had to tell my friend, can you just apologize to my dad, because you don't mean it, because my dad's like, he's a good writer. Uh, you know, what's wrong with you? And it was funny. And so then I was like, what the hell are you doing to my friend? And my friend's like, yeah, I think it's funny. Like, that's my dad. <laughs> Stop trying to piss my dad off. So, J.D. Salinger... When it comes to writing, J.D. Salinger was no phony. Because <laughs> he, he said that a lot in his books. Uh, the reclusive author was the man behind The Catcher in the Rye, one of the most beloved and debated novels of all time. But while Salinger's work has attracted legions of fans, many don't know, eh, dash, or overlook, dash, his controversial history with teenage girls. Oh, as it turns out, Salinger was something of a creep. Oh, another term he used in his book. <laughs> uh, when it came to manipulating young women. Ugh. He would often lure these young girls into romantic relationships by writing them letters, uh, using both his pen and his power to seduce and trap teenagers. Gross. When he was 53, he spotted uh, a teenage Joyce Maynard on the cover of New York Times and Sue drew her into a relationship. Gross. Uh, she would later write about her interactions with the writer, describing him as more uh, than a tad 
predatory. Uh, ickier still, he began courting Jean Miller when she was ugh, just 14. He kept their uncomfortable relationship going until the girl turned 20, uh, and then they uh, and then they finally hooked up. Oh, that's a cool little term used by Grunge.com. Hooked up after collecting for the Red Cross, uh, and uh, and he responded by pulling a gun and threatening to shoot her. Sure, the man was reclusive, but taking shots at the Red Cross is going a little too far with this whole angsty artist thing. That's a way to downplay something serious and terrifying. Plus, it's coming from some sort of pedophile. Uh, well, technically, my friend who made my dad angry about J.D. Salinger was correct. But he didn't know he was correct at the time that he made my dad angry. I don't have a grandfather clock anymore. Now I have a fox giving a mating call uh, as the way to tell me when to shut up, but I still got time. So, uh, tornado weather happened here last week in Minnesota. And my girlfriend, who is living here now after moving away from New Jersey, uh, had to experience her first tornado weather. She went out with a friend, uh, drinking at some bar or something, and, uh, sirens went off and everything, and they had to go run back to the friend's house and, uh, go hide in the basement. Uh, so that was a lot of fun for her, and she said, It sucks here. I guess she texted somebody else saying, This place blows. <laughs> well, that's the fox giving its mating call, so with that, why don't we dive into the story? Well, uh, not a whole lot's been going on. Chapter after chapter after chapter has just been build up where Count Renizzi is hitting on Yasmin, uh, dragging her away from her husband, and uh, also showing off his torture room that he's pretty proud of. And he's got a bunch of people around him that help him maintain the torture room, which seems really weird. It'd be like me hiring people to maintain and take care of my podcasting spot in the basement. Just seems weird. But anyways, uh, he's got that. Uh, And then the protagonist, she winds up seeing uh, a guy in a hood or whatever uh, torturing someone who's wearing a mask. So she thought it was a dummy at first, but it turns out there's a person behind that uh, false mask, whatever, screaming and yelling. And then she screams, and then the, the torturer chases her, and then she falls down some stairs, and then everyone sees her fall down the stairs. And they said, ah, you're dreaming you silly woman. And so uh, that's been pretty much all that's happened. We're on chapter nine. We have one chapter uh, left after this, and the book's done. It feels like the story's just getting started, and it's almost done. So this has been a good book. Chapter nine. I walked upstairs with Sophia Salta, talking about Count Renizzi, who still is uh, downstairs with Yasmin and Adam. It must be so nice to have that kind of wealth, Sophia, I was saying, uh, as we reached the top of the stairs, especially inherited wealth. Oh, Sophia laughed. (laughs) Yeah, great wealth in our country carries great responsibilities, Signoria. And you are quite wrong uh, about the count. He was probably had to uh, work harder and worry more than most wealthy Americans. Really? I thought all his wealth and power came from his aristocratic ancestors. Indeed, no, Signoria, she smiled. The Renese fortune, like the fortunes of many other Italian aristocrats, was lost in World War II. Even the artifacts were taken from the castle by the Nazis before they left. Oh, they had to be purchased by the Count. Uh, What little was left, the Count built into his present fortune only after his father died and he inherited his father's debts. The horses... This place, 
the estate in Sicily uh, as it is today, the show place, uh, were only possible through the present Count's hard work and sound business judgment. And he is uh, a millionaire, eh? Many times over, eh? and growing steadily richer now. Well, we'd stop at the head of the stairs where Sophia's room was in the right-hand passage. Mine, in the left, where I could see Shane waiting impatiently for me as though I'd stayed too long downstairs, which I probably had. Yeah, yeah Christ. How, do, how did he do it, for heaven's sakes? Not gambling, since you say he worked for it. The Count's father was an officer in the Italian Navy in the war. Afterwards, because he had found the primitive electronic equipment of the time interesting, he had little more than the bare walls of Castle Renese to leave this son. And the Count's father insisted Peter uh, should study electro- uh, electronics. And he did. He be- Electronics? Oh, wow. So he's got transistor radios. He became the king of transistor radios. He did and became interested, too. He began an experiment with electronic equipment, which he invented and patented. Today, he is the president of one of Europe's principal electronic equipment manufacturing companies. Just transistor radios. That's the first time I've heard that in italics, I said, surprised. Oh, he does not speak of it. His only interest now is in the old things that had value for his father's. Fine horses, paintings, and tweaks. The things he has here. She glanced down at the stairs, and I heard them moving down there as... Turn the page, because it's not a Kindle. Though about to come up. You will not speak of this, Megan? He does not like to be reminded of it, now that it is no longer necessary to him. I smiled. Nah, of course not, Sophia. If that's the way he wants it, and it's a part of it that he wants to forget, she nodded. And that's the way it is for him, Signoria. In Sicily, in the castle, there is nothing electronic. <laughs> kind of like how I used to do web design. And uh, I will never design my own website. Uh, because why would you? Now you can just press a button, and it's done. There's so many services. Just make it... Press a button, and it's done. My own website, uh, nuzzlehouse.com, if you go to it, it's crap. It's just a free thing generated by the place that hosts my uh, podcast. So uh, I understand that, how, how he wouldn't want any electronics in his house. Well, uh, it's only since he came here that we have television sets. I think only so that he can study the horse races here in America. Uh, good night, Signoria. Good night, Sophia. Hurrying to Shane, I tried to visualize Count Petro as a pioneer in the field of electronics. Nah, but could not. That was the way it had been with him, though. Sophia was his secretary and should know. And she had uh, been also, uh, absolutely sincere in the telling, and I was sure of it. But my mental picture of Count Petro, the technician in white overalls experimenting in the lab, what, on transistor radios, faded as I saw the expression on Shane's face. I thought you'd never get here, he said resentfully. Nah, it wasn't easy getting away. Sophia and I were talking. Well, they'll be coming up any time. It's late. Well, they're on their way up now, I think. Uh, do you want me to want to come into my room? I better not, Megan. All of Dr. Giliano, what, uh, uh, all Dr. Giliano would tell me was that Gene dislocated his left wrist and pulled muscles in his leg when he slipped and fell. Uh, he said the injury wasn't serious. Both Oliver and Gene uh, will be all right once they reach New York. Dislocated wrist? Uh, pulled muscles? Shane, it was Gene. Oh, he frowned and shook his head. Or it could have happened exactly the way Gene told the doctor. Uh, you were jumping to conclusions again. 
Was that all he said? Ah, yes. I expected him to tell me Oliver left against his advice. I told Uncle Adam, and I expected him to be angry about it, but, uh, but he wasn't. He broke off. Adam and Yasmin were coming around the corner from the stairs. Oh, they stopped right there for a moment, saying goodnight to Count Renizzi before he turned toward his own room in the same passage as Sophia's. Megan, Shane said in a low voice, I had an impression Dr. Giliano was frightened. Uh, uh, frightened, uh, frightened of what? Jesus, frightened of what? Nah, I don't know, but I'm sure he was scared about something. It was though someone else was in the room with him. Uh, Luigi is in the village tonight, and so is Niccolo. Uh, Sophia mentioned it. He stared at me. Megan, what's going on in this damn place? Luigi and Niccolo, remember the footprints I saw coming up into the gallows? Uh, one large and, 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 and one small. They could have been theirs. Yasmin and Adam were coming toward us. <laughs> Adam called cheerfully. Have you arranged the car ride to New York yet, you two? Only two days left. I hadn't uh, made up my mind about that yet, and I started to say so, but Shane said too quickly for me, uh, Yes, Uncle Adam, everything's arranged, and we're both looking forward to it, and Megan will uh, still be the first home, since she'll be flying from New York, unless, of course, I can persuade her to come to a, guild a guided tour of our Columbia campus with me. He was smiling down at me affectionately. With piles of correspondence waiting at Greenfields, I said firmly, Shane, you don't have a chance. I don't see why not, he said as Yasmin smiled at his, at his discomfiture. <laughs> one of these days, you're going to have to get married. That's a weird choice of words. One of these days, you're going to have to get married and leave Greenfields, he added maliciously. Auntie Yasmin will have to take over then. Until she can train someone to take her place, she was, might as well get used to it now, I'd say. Uh, he had no right to say that, uh, the way he had. I, I felt myself flush, embarrassed. And he only, he only called Yasmin auntie when he was angry with her. Yasmin gave me a puzzled look, but Adam Lester was slow and approving. I hope you do marry the right guy, Megan, he said. You're a, well, you're a nice girl, and we'd accept you in our family, uh, oh, any old time. Wouldn't we, Yasmin? Of course, Yasmin said automatically, obviously still puzzled. If I ever uh, do marry, oh, it'll be the right one, I promise you, I said with an indignant glance at Shane, uh, which told him quite plainly the, what I was thinking. Well, he grunted something and went into his own room across the passage and, and, and slammed his door. I undressed slowly. Mmm still seething, and climbed into bed. Uh, but both the log fire and my resentment were too bright to let me sleep. Uh, even though I was bone-tired, I turned from side to side. I lay on my back, and I breathed deeply. I relaxed my muscles and blanked out my thoughts. But nothing continued to work. Oh, my mind insidiously returned to the problems I had encountered here in Castle Renizzi when I should be relaxing, enjoying myself like Yasmin. Relaxing, enjoying herself. Just a couple nights before, she was being chased by a, a, a person that wanted to kill her. And she's like, why can't I relax? Why can't I enjoy this place? As a schoolgirl, oh, I used to walk around the golf course at the country club with my father. And for years afterwards, when I wasn't sleepy, I'd close my eyes in bed and, re and relive each finding of the white ball and the green, green grass. Each stroke and hole played against the soothing background of green fairways and, uh, and, uh, and shady trees. I always fell asleep before I reached the third tree. I began to try that now as a last resort, only using the Castle Remise in place of the country club. Uh, I started with the drive from the airport with Shane. She's really glossing over what would really be 
keeping you from sleeping, which is the chance of murder while you're laying in bed. She's like, oh, I just, I, why, I, why can't I fall asleep? I'm trying to remember the torture room and the time I fell down the stairs. How come I can't relax? I started with the drive from the airport with Shane with the sunset at Wolf Point and my, my glimpses of Castle Winesi and Carla coming to meet us at the door. I was sitting up in bed suddenly, my sleep forgotten as my mind saw again a figure in the headsman's black passing beneath my window. Yeah, the guy that wanted to kill you. Knocking at the door, Carla opened. And I was remembering again that Shane had told me about Count Renizzi being Carla's lover before the rest of us came to Castle Renizzi. That could have been Count Renizzi that night. Not Luigi whom the Count said was a gentleman uh, who went to Sunday Mass and wouldn't harm a living thing, exclamation point. But Count Pietro Renizzi was not a gentleman at heart. Oh, he had inherited violence in his bloodline all the way down through the centuries, from feudal times and beyond. Oh, eh, 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 his forefathers had the cruelty to use those horrible implements of torture. Uh, who is to say he wouldn't if he thought he could get away with it? I had... That's weird... <laughs> That's a pretty weird line of logic. What? It's bred into you. You're violent. It's bred into you. It's so horrible. That's a really weird thing to say. I had something, and I was sure of it. At least Luigi was the only one who wore a headsman's gear around the castle. Count Pietro had that, too, and so did Niccolo. Pietro and Niccolo? Eh? There was something Niccolo's cousin Sophia had told me about that. Something Sophia said? Eh? Question mark? Without him, it's probably in a ghost voice. Without him, we would be. No I'm not going to put a reverb on this. I'm not going to go that far. Without him, we would be nothing, Signoria. She had told me with a deep feeling. We all four love him, but Niccolo, three dots, Niccolo would die for him. Well, I moved on. Uh, white ball against green grass again, I thought, and I hadn't met Count Petro when I arrived. Why? Uh, he had gone to the island in the workboat. Carla had told me, with Niccolo, and both Adam and Shane had seen two pairs of footprints leading up to the gallows, and Shane said one was large, uh, one small, like a, like a, like a man and a, and a, and a girl, or a, or a man and a, a boy, or like Count Renizzi and Niccolo, oh, maybe Count Renizzi didn't love Yasmin, but he wanted her. And for once, Yasmin had been indifferent toward a, a, a handsome, uh, wealthy man uh, who wasn't used to being rejected. Till now, with both Oliver and Jean gone, Yasmin was turning to Petro. But had Petro planned it that way? These things were intuitive. All of them. Things that, uh, as a woman, I recognized instantly. But, uh, uh, but what did I have uh, that could be considered proof? Footprints on the island... Oh, the gale at night could have uh, washed them away. Uh, a headsman's gear? Nah, anyone could have worn that. And Carla, like the Count, could have more than one lover. Oh, there were photos of Adam had taken a pole stacked beneath the dangerous platform. Turn the page because it's not a Kindle. I hate this so much. Ready to fall. But that, too, could have been, as the Count said, the poles taken down by uh, someone who meant to steal them but hadn't intended to endanger anyone. White ball against the green grass again, I thought, and I'd seen someone torturing Jean Bethel. But would Jean admit the note he had signed to Adam had been written under duress of actual torture? Oh, I couldn't prove that either, because that, that wretched door wouldn't open. Jean might be the key, uh, but that could also be why he's running from it all. Maybe the uh, maybe the doctor had lied, and Jean and Oliver were dead or uh, captive here. Oh, Oliver must have realized that someone had intended to, to, to murder him. Yeah. yeah, both these men lived the dolce vita. 
And that was uh, too good to lose for a woman like Yasmin. No matter how, no matter how attractive she was. Oh, there would always be others somewhere equally attractive. Uh, but when you, when you had their kind of money, uh, and Sophia was right about that, neither of those men had ever had to work as hard as the Count might have when he built up his multi-million dollar electronics complex. Uh, in italics, electronics, question mark. Also in italics, I was staring at the fire suddenly, with my mind whirling. Electronics. That was the answer to my door that wouldn't open. That was the answer to a locked door that had no visible lock. It had to be. I knew little about electronics, except that it was possible to open a closed door by the use of photoelectric cell. What? And a beam of light. Uh, all right. Like the one that shone down that painting of Yasmin above. I could prove there was a passage from the study. Now I was sure of it. Oh, it would be like the, the doors that opened automatically in department stores when people passed through the beam of light. Intruders would trigger an electronic alarm in the same way. I looked around impulsively uh, for my robe and slippers and had found the small flashlight in the drawer of my dressing table before I quite realized what I was doing. As I stepped out into the silent corridor and closed the door behind me, I glanced apprehensively up and down the passage. Oh, oh, I couldn't go through another walking nightmare uh, like that again, and uh, the realization carried me quickly to Shane's closed door. I would take Shane, my fear decided for me, with Shane, I would feel safe. Not that there was really anything to fear tonight, uh, even alone, uh, for Hen Sophia told me that her brother and Niccolo were in the village, and I had seen the Count go off to bed. The whole house slept soundly behind closed doors. Except me! All the suspects on my list were absent or asleep. Three dots. Adam was too, and I could hear snoring. Yasmin swore she never did that. I tried Shane's door. That was kind of a snub. I tried uh, Shane's door handle, but it would not open. Shane must lock it on the inside every night. Listening, I could hear his heavy breathing as he slept. Uh, uh, Shane, I hissed. Shane, uh, it's me, Megan. That heavy breathing never wavered. But to my dismay, Adam Lester's strident snoring stopped abruptly as he muttered, uh, what, uh, what's, uh, what's the matter? Uh, Yasmin? I withdrew hurriedly into the shadows. Yasmin wakened too. She demanded petulantly, well, What is it? And I thought you I thought you called me. Dreaming, she muttered disgustingly. Next thing you'll be sleepwalking, like Megan. This makes me uh, think about security. When you're sleep oh Jesus. When you're sleeping in a room uh, at a friend's house and people are just knocking on your door, you don't know who's on the other side. It's the worst part. You're just trying to mind your own business. Someone's knocking on your door. Oh, do they want to have sex? Uh, or if it's like some person you don't want to have sex with, uh, maybe it's somebody knocking on your bedroom door because, uh, I don't know, they're going to kill you or something. Wouldn't it be nice if you could see them before you actually answer the door? You can just lay there pretending to sleep and they'd never know. Well, you can't in Castle Renizi, but you could if it was a glass door with a one-way mirror thing like the cop shows always have, and you can find that kind of glass door at uh, Doorglass Incorporated. D-O-R-G-L-A-S-S dot com. Stephen Dorglas, founder of Doorglass Incorporated, uh, who had a beautiful Beautiful upper body and small little teeny tiny legs. Little tiny wisps for legs. Uh, his modeling uh, career went down the tubes and he had to fall back on glass. Glass that's safe and secure and allows you to 
see what's going on on the other side of it. Especially in a castle where they refuse to use electronics. Can't have a camera or anything with a little monitor. No, they won't allow that in uh, Count Renese's castle. So all you got is glass. Glass with a one-way mirror. Oh, they're dedicated to fabricating professionally installing the highest quality glass products from the nation's top manufacturers. All their inventory, combined with their years of experience, makes them the premier source for installation and repair. They approach every project with the same goals. Professionalism, integrity, and more importantly, when you're trying to get a glass door, that maybe kind of looks like wood, but I don't know. It's hard to do if it's going to have a reverse mirror thing. I don't know how you could pull that off where the person knocking on the door can't tell that you're basically staring at them through glass. But you can always ask Door Glass Incorporated because they're discreet. What do they do? Commercial storefronts, automatic entrances, windows, patio doors, mirrors, shower doors, installation, repair, and they will design and build any goddamn thing you ask them to. If you try to say, I want to lay in bed and be able to see who's knocking on my door in case they're trying to kill me, make sex with me, or, I don't know, maybe they're just crazy, uh, they'll figure it out for you. Oh, they'll figure out something. Uh, their clients are Pottery Barn, Williams Sonoma, Sherman Williams, Portillo's, which is a sandwich place no one cares about, the Salt Cave, which is a place in Minneapolis where you can sit and meditate and do yoga and other crap like that for boring people, uh, because the walls apparently are made of Himalayan salt, and they light them from behind, so you're just like in this glowing cube, and if somehow that's supposed to be good for you. They claim, uh, oh, it helps with all sorts of diseases and ailments. It doesn't. Uh, they claim that if you do yoga, in here, it's going to improve your body somehow, especially when they do hot yoga in their weird little salt glowing room, like you're in like like you're in some kind of womb, like you're a small fetus in some kind of womb. Uh, and they say uh, you know, so many benefits. Yeah, just just pay us money. Shut up, do it. And uh, the thing is, don't touch the walls. It's on their website. Do not touch the walls. If you touch the walls, they're going to call the Minneapolis police, which do not have a good history of treating people well. And uh, then you know, will never hear from you again. Uh, and also, Applebee's. Well, with that, uh, I don't have a master bedroom anymore, so why don't we go to the porch? I think that was my bit last time, the sexy porch, where I could read to you the latest upcoming romance literature from Penguin Random House Books. Oh, that's right. It's my romance porch, where it's always raining. Is it raining because magically when you step on this porch, you're in some sort of new dimension where it's a world that rains all the time in a forest? Uh, I don't know, but the deal, it could just be that the porch is wet all the time. A lot of moss. It's dewy. And what we're hearing is the moss dew dripping down onto our heads from inside the porch itself. The ideal man! is a book that you're handing to me as you're dressed like some kind of FBI agent with some sort of raincoat and uh, a fedora and sunglasses. One of those weird little wire things you stick in your ear so you can look like you're talking to someone or someone's talking to you. I don't know. And uh, you've also weirdly stuffed your pants. Your pants that have pleats, you stuffed them with some kind of sock or something to make it look like you got a, a huge load. And you're pointing at the ideal man, which has got a picture of a muscly man on it, uh, by Julie Garwood. Uh, the category is suspense, romance, crime, mysteries, and a suspense thriller. About the ideal man? A woman's life and love are compromised in this pulse-pounding thriller from the number one uh, New York Times bestselling author, Julie Garwood. <laughs> Dr. Ellie Sullivan has witnessed the shooting of an FBI agent in pursuit of a ruthless modern-day Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, the only person to see the shooter's face 
Ellie is suddenly thrust into the center of a criminal investigation, spearheaded by the no-nonsense, uh, by-the-book, and uh, tantalizingly handsome agent Max Daniels. When the couple is captured, oh, she'll be called to testify, but the Landrys have been caught before, and each time the witnesses are scared into silence, or, uh, or they disappear, now Max vows to be Ellie's shadow, promising to never leave her side until the trial. But that would be dangerous for the both of them. And it isn't long before the sparks, eh, M-dash, and bullets, eh, M-dash, fly. Well, you can find this book at Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble's, Books A Million, Bookshop.org, Hudson Bookshellers, Indiebound Powell's, Target, and Walmart. Coming in June 7th for 12 bucks. Well, that was crap, and I also don't like our outfit. Also, I uh, feel slightly insulted by the, bow, uh, the bulge you've got in your pants. Uh, makes me feel inadequate. So why don't we go back inside and get out of this wet porch uh, where we can finish reading the rest of this story. Ah, here we are. Oh, yeah, still wearing the outfit. Still wearing the bulge in your pants, which I completely resent. Well, we're almost halfway through this chapter, and still almost nothing is happening. She's still trying to get in the room with the painting. Uh, she says that thanks to the power of electronics, there might be a kind of like a garage door where if you got a laser or a photosensitive cell or whatever they described it as, that if you cross it, it's supposed to like make the door stop me. So here you you. Break the beam, and then the door is going to open. The painting is going to get away from the wall. What would it be? You touch the painting somewhere. Where are you going to touch the painting? Is it going to be something disgusting, like the painting of Yasmin? It's like one of her breasts. You put your hand on one of them, and then also the door unlocks. Just weird. But well, this book's almost done, and we still almost nothing's happening. I crouched there, trembling, until Adam began to snore again, surprisingly quickly. Yasmin remained silent. So, whether she slept or not, I have uh, no way of knowing, but there was no doubt that Shane sleeping, uh, though his breath hadn't missed a beat, but I was frightened to wake Shane now. If Yasmin uh, heard me calling to be let in, if they had a glass door, this wouldn't be a problem. I knew exactly what she'd think, and if I had awakened Adam that easily, I might wake Sophia, who might call the Count in his suite uh, to end uh, at the end of the passage. I looked longingly... uh, at uh, my own closed door, but a pressing need to make sure that I was right was stronger than my fear at the moment. I told myself there could be no danger. The suspects were all accounted for. I would go down to the study and uh, try the door according to this new theory of mine. Oh, the door would open, and I would and I would close it immediately and go back to bed. But just in case, I would slide a note under Shane's door telling him of my plan. Not that anything should happen, but I, I did feel better after I had put the note under his door. Great. This is great writing. I crept past the Lester's door to the stairs. This is all meticulous and annoying. With my heart starting to pound heavily at once, despite my arguments against my need for fear, I peered down the passage at the closed door of the uh, count suite, but uh, it was in complete darkness. Eh? And Sophia was still awake, uh, though, semicolon, I could see the light spilling out uh, from beneath her closed door. The stairs squeaked faintly as I descended, a sound I hadn't noticed before, but, but heard now with heightened senses. Somewhere beyond the darkened kitchens, a young woman laughed softly, and I wondered who it was. Carla, uh, perhaps? Hmm? Or Sophia's sister, Maria? Eh? 
It hadn't occurred to me until I had my hand upon the old-fashioned brass handle that the Count might lock his study door at night. I held my breath, but the handle turned, and the door opened silently, and I was peering into the thick darkness within. I closed the door behind me and, uh, and flicked on my light. A chance, it showed me Yasmin's face vaguely in the light, watching me as I swung the beam away in search of the room with it, turning the page because it was in a Kindle. Nothing moved as I crept across the big desk, with the light wavering unsteadily ahead as my fear increased. I kept telling myself there was no reason for fear, but my cowardice refused to listen. Oh, there was something about this room, perhaps the memory of, uh, of that other horrible night that terrified me now as it had then. But I had gone so far now, I, I had to continue. With trembling fingers, I flicked the line of switches, searching for the right one. Light came on behind the toilet door. Then a desk lit under my eyes, almost blinded me. Uh, and I almost fainted at the click of another switch. Uh, canned music started. By then, I was shaking so badly I could hardly press down the next one. But my, uh, to my joy, the light above the portrait of Yasmin came on, flooding down the canvas. I hurried across it. I'm trying to imagine the scene where she's flicking on lights. One turns on. Ah, I'm blinded. Another has canned music. Terrifying, and her hands are shaking. <laughs> I hurried across it, forgetting the flashlight beams uh, still wavering about aimlessly. The light bathed the portrait in a thin stream all the way down to the carpeted floor. It showed the canvas, the top of the frame, and the space behind that. But little more. I held my breath and glanced over my shoulder anxiously at the closed door before I confronted the problem. The, the automatic doors opened uh, when you stood before them. And I was doing that. But nothing was happening. Go on. Touch the painting of Yasmin's breasts. I moved closer until the toes of my slippers were in the descending light. Still nothing. Think, Megan. Think, I muttered. Yeah, put your hand on that breast. That was the advice Dad had always given me when I had a problem I couldn't solve. <laughs> I've never considered doing that to my own children. If they have a problem they can't solve, I just start shouting, Think! Think! <laughs> I had a vague idea I must interrupt that beam of light to activate whatever force opened the door, or negate whatever force held it shut. Yeah, the beam of light. Probably in a specific area. The specific area of the painting's body. Perhaps if I put my arm across the portrait? No, four dots. Suddenly I noticed that there was some light spilling down behind the top of the frame. Perhaps if I blocked the light completely up there, if I could reach it, three dots, question mark, balancing on the toes of my slippers, I whimpered in fright as something moved against me, forcing me back off my balance. I fell sprawling on the carpet. The door was opening. Oh, she's got to put your hands above the picture. Lame. Triumph. Almost drove away my terror as I wriggled out of the way, losing one slipper in the process. I got up, shaking, to stare in the darkness beyond the door that had only partly opened, and uh, it looked now as it had the other night. Except that tonight there was no red glow to show me stone steps going down. I was safe tonight. There was nobody in the dungeons, no tortured figure on the rack. I had found the way uh, the secret door had opened, and any electronic door in the Renizzi castle had to be Petro's brainchild. Last time, I had walked down to the landing to find the bottom door, turning the page, open. Did the uh, one beam open both doors simultaneously? Question mark. Oh, my beam reached out feebly, showing me the passage, then the beginning of the steps going down. Uh, 
At first landing, I could see uh, the lower door. I kept swinging the beam of light back behind fearfully, uh, but nothing moved there, and I reached the landing and stared down. The lower door was open, just as it had been the other night. I shuddered as the flashlight beam reaching through me, uh, the, the shape of the rack shrouded in its cover. Away, Megan, I thought in nervous triumph. You've proven your point. Don't linger. I turned and was running back up the steps. I shrieked suddenly in pure terror. The dancing light of the beam had shown me a silent figure waiting at the top. A figure in grim black, eyes glinting through slits of the mask. Oh, I screamed and was running down the steps again uh, to the landing on the down. And I missed a step and I fell, bruising myself on the stone. And uh, the, the light still shone and I, I saw I had fallen on the stone floor of the dungeon. The door! I had to get to the outer door. He headed me off that way before, and I could reach the safety of my room, but there there, there was, there must be a way up. Uh, service stairs to the floor just around the corner from my room, perhaps. He did not have a light to trap, uh, uh, to trap on the steps. He did switch on the lights in the study, and I could hear him in the room behind me blundering through the darkness in pursuit of me. Uh, as, using my light, I fled faster than he could across the outer dungeon of the door. I stared at it in horror as the beam searched feverishly for the door handle I expected to find. I screamed again as I remembered Count Renese's explanation for the first time I had set foot in the horrible place. Uh, there was no lock on the inside door, this is in italics, dot, 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 lest the victims should overwhelm their torturers and lock themselves in against the guards outside. And even as I screamed, I heard laughter behind me, and two arms like iron bands caught at my throat and held me fast. I was screaming hysterically. I knew, and somewhere a guttural accented voice was saying, Scream if you want! Go on, scream! Nobody can hear you in here! I was close to fainting, but I think terror held me back. The lights came on abruptly, and I saw the second man in a hood and a mask coming toward me, uh, menacingly. He was taller than the man who held me, a slim man with gleaming, malevolent, dark eyes. He reached out a hand, and caught my hair, and uh, raised my face so he could see it better. He looked at me briefly and nodded. He let my head fall back painfully. Uh, what do you want? I demanded in a trembling voice that didn't sound like mine. I've done you no harm. You must let me go. I might not have spoken for all the notice either took of me. The tall man said something in a rapid Italian, and the other replied and took leather thongs from the pocket of his jerkin and began to tie my wrists and ankles tightly, as though he enjoyed hurting me. Uh, please, I whimpered, my friends will come looking for me. Oh, let me go unharmed, and I promise you I won't tell anyone or go to the police. I was too scared to mention my note to Shane, in case they captured him and all hope would be lost. Now they were arguing suddenly, uh, though whether or not about me I had no way of knowing. The man who had tied me and thrown me face down to the stone floor seemed to be giving in reluctantly. Oh, he moved into my line of vision, going back into the next room, and he started doing something uh, near the cells where I couldn't see him, uh, grunting with the effort as he worked, and I, I, I turned over on my back, hurting my wrists in my effort to see the other man. He had lit a cigarette and was smoking nervously through the mouth hole in his mask. In desperation, I tried something different. Are you, uh... Nah, you gotta kill me, huh? Why? I've done nothing to you. Nah, come on, let me go. I never will. I won't say a word. Dark eyes regarded me in silence, uninterestedly, as though whether I lived or died was of no importance whatsoever. I could name you, I said, and your friend, and so could others. But why should we, if, we, if you stop now? 
What have you done that you can be blamed for? An accident that happened to Oliver Grant? No. An injury to Jean Bethel that I witnessed? Now, they think I dreamed that. And I will say no more about it if you let me go. Jean and Oliver are gone. What are you afraid of? Let me go. Dot, 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 italics, please. He had been sitting on the edge of the bench, smoking. He stood up and stubbed his cigarette carelessly. The other man was coming back. He asked a question of the other man, answered with a single word. Silently, I was being picked up and carried back to the other room, arguing desperately but uselessly for my release. Only I saw where they were taking me then, and my guessing their intention, I began to scream and kick and try to fight free. Oh, they were carrying me to the blind cell at the end of the row, the cell without windows or doors. The small man had moved a stone from the ceiling, a heavy stone that I saw that lifted me and rested close-fitting with his fellows upon heavy iron bars. I was being held by the small man who great strength while the other untied my wrists, and I screamed again as I dropped upon the stone floor. My knees collapsed from weakness to terror. Oh, I was hurt, uh, but I sprang up again at once in even greater terror, uh, for they were fitting the stone back onto my roof. No, I screamed. No, don't. I'll do anything. Dot, 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 exclamation point. Momentarily, a dark face looked down at me without feeling. Immured in pace. In pace? P-A-C-E. All right. A deep voice said, the heavy stone fell, and an awful darkness pressed in upon me. Worse than the darkness of a prison. The darkness of a tomb. Four dots. I shrieked in terror, losing reason as the unthinking terror I tried to get out, and I could uh, barely reach within the tips of my fingers, the stones on the roof, or the iron bars that held them up. There were no windows, no doors, but I tore at the stones with my fingers until I felt exhausted and bleeding. Well, that's the end of that. Uh, chapter 10 is literally two pages. So let's save that for next week. Next week's going to be a two-pager. Uh, and hopefully the story's really going to start. That'll be fun. Why don't we uh, wrap this up? We'll go out to the outhouse with the giant beehive in it. And uh, we can review what we've read in this chapter. Well, here we are, if you just give me a second to pull my pants down, as I sit on this wooden slab with a hole cut in it, as I can feel the giant hole dug into the ground down below me and the stagnant air brushing up against my butt cheeks. And we review uh, what we just read. Uh, basically, the story's still barely chugging along. She finally got back into the room, and she went downstairs, and then she's like, okay, good enough. You want to turn around and go back upstairs, and uh, there's a guy standing at the door. So now she's been pushed around, and she got stuck into this uh, cell, basically. Kept saying, I won't tell anyone. Well, but they don't listen. They just smoke their cigarettes. Uh, don't care. And so now she's stuck in this kind of uh, dungeony thing, uh, like a pit with a stone over the top or something. Whatever. Um, basically, this should have happened in the middle of the book. Uh, but nope, we're one chapter away. That's only two pages long. So clearly she's going to get saved and pulled out, and then uh, that's pretty much the end of the story. Then everything's, everything she said is right, and everyone's going to know that she was right. In two pages, we're going to get to that point. So that's amazing. What's good? The book's almost done. Uh, everything else about it sucks. What sucks? The rest of the book. The fact that this right now happening should have been in the middle of the book, or a 
three-fourths of the way through the book. Not the last chapter. Uh, what do we learn? There's a reason why someone uses a house name. Because if you're not a good writer, you don't want anyone knowing who you are. You don't want your name associated with it. But we figured it out. We know who he is. Dick. What's his name? Dick Wilkes Hunter. We know who you are. Uh, now, after your death. And we know that you're not a good writer. So, with that, uh, thanks for listening. And uh, get out of my outhouse so I can finish taking a crap. You hear that? Out there? The crickets chirping? Those are mating calls. Each cricket desperately, desperately calling out to other female or male crickets dying for attention. Each of them desperate for one of them to come to them with open insect arms and make sex with them. It's a field of whores. And so with that uh, backdrop, I want to tell you that if you want to learn anything more about this podcast, go to nuzzlehouse.com, and that's it. I'm not listing off the rest of my social media. I've got a Twitter, uh, which you can go to if you want, but go to nuzzlehouse.com and find out about it. You want to find out if I've got a, a Instagram? Sure, I don't use it, but you can go to nuzzlehouse.com find out about that, because uh, you're all whores, just like this field of gentle crickets out there chirping in the night. Ah, listen to them.